Thanks for joining us and supporting Vicky Doe Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about health disparities, health equity, and the determinants of health. The determinants of health, such as where you work, your education, where you live, and other factors influence your access to health care and your quality of life. Joining us is attorney Daniel Doss, a health care attorney and author of his new book, The Political Determinants of Health. He will talk about the political determinants of health and how we need to focus more closely on these in order to bring about more effective solutions in confronting health inequality and health disparities. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks Bright. Hi, Vicki Doe. How are you? I am fine. It's a beautiful day. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful day. It is absolutely gorgeous. And we are inside, but we're going to be outside soon, right, Dee? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes, Definitely. yes. Well, today we talk about health disparities, health equity, and the determinants of health. So what are the main determinants of health? Well, your income and social status, where you work, education, and literacy, your neighborhood, where you live, but most importantly, where you have where you have access to health services. Now, all of these are determinants of health, and these factors can affect your health outcomes and your well-being. And so today, we have joining us attorney Daniel Doss, a healthcare attorney and the director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. And he is here to talk about his new book, The Political Determinants of Health. He advocates that, yes, these social determinants of health are important for us to look at and address when we talk about health equity and health disparities. But we also need to address and understand the political determinants of health and how even down to who and what we vote for can affect overall aspects of health. We need to look at all of these factors so that we can find effective solutions. That is what Daniel Doss 
is writing in his book and explaining to us. And so he's here with us today and we are excited to talk with Attorney Daniel and we cannot wait. Right, Dee? Ecstatic. Ecstatic. Yes, yes, yes. We've wanted him on for so long, even when he wrote his first book, 150 Years of Obamacare. So we're really fortunate. He's so busy. We're so fortunate to have him. Yes, we are. And so we can't wait. Listen, I know many of you have checked out our Vicido Fitness Health and Wellness website, www.vicidofitness.com. But while you are there, I want to make sure that you sign up for our newsletter, our email list to receive the updates about our new health wellness webinar trainings and online programs. Right now, we are showcasing our step-by-step weight loss boot camp masterclass online program, a 12-week comprehensive weight loss program. But we also want you to sign up for our free course and our webinar training, Get Back to Healthy Living, so that you can get a taste of what we do here at Vicido Fitness. Now, these are health and wellness programs, and we have these online so that you can participate and get that healthy transformation that you have always wanted. And so let us start living, folks. Go ahead, check it out. Let's start living. We can do it. And myself, health experts, my health experts are here to help you achieve your healthy living goals. And so I encourage you to take that step, go directly to www.vikidofitness.com forward slash training to learn more about our online programs as well. And what do we always say, Dee? Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Now, I can't believe, like we said, I can't believe it's rolling into August, but at least it's, it's sunny. Over. I mean, it's over. <laughs> Summer is over. O-V-A-A. <laughs> what you say? It's over. It's over. <laughs> over. <laughs> well, you know, August, you know, it's our birthday month. You know, my honey sweet, me and Natalie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is going to be different because we're celebrating, you know, we can, we'll be able to write this down in history that we're celebrating our birthdays during the pandemic. Yes, yes. So that's going to be something, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and let us not forget to mention our girl, ladies and gentlemen, Natalie Doe will be involved in the white coat ceremony for Ohio State University first year medical school class of 2001 through 2024 yes 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 woohoo woohoo fabulous yay woo, woo, woo. yes kudos kudos to Dr. Natalie Doe Dr. Natalie Doe fantastic fantastic and so yeah we because we are social distancing we will be looking at, and you'll be joining us too, Dee. We'll be, I will. We'll be looking at the ceremony and just very proud. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes, Absolutely. yes. <laughs> so how was your week? Um, well, last weekend I worked, so I've been busy, you know, and I just want to say to everybody, please wear your mask because there's an uptick in the hospital. I think we've doubled our cases in the last two weeks, so it's real. And we were down to... Um, 
you know, maybe 10 or so, and things. I was just talking to the chief medical officer today, and uh, in the system, it's climbing, it's climbing. So, you know, for all those that think that we flattened the curve, uh, you know, there's been some slip-ups, and people need to just continue to wear their mask. I can't, you know, emphasize that enough social distance, wash your hands and wear your mask. That's it, and that's what you say we need to start saying that instead of just saying know your numbers, know your numbers and wear your mask. Exactly. So what is going on this week? Everything, Vicki, everything. August is National Wellness Month. And so the Live Love Spa founded National Wellness Month in 2018 to foster community connection and commerce in the wellness industry. And so this initiative inspires consumers to focus on wellness and provides a platform for wellness companies to highlight their services and benefits. Because it's National Wellness Month, they are asking us to focus on self-care, managing our stress, and producing healthy routines. And so here are some ways that you can do that. Research has shown that Self-care helps manage stress and promotes happiness. And whether you challenge yourself to a new yoga pose or try a different spa treatment, make a small change and impact your health in positive ways. And so here are some numerous ways that you can do these small changes. And so number one, increase your water intake. Number two, add more fruits and vegetables to your meals. Number three, Monitor your sleep and make adjustments for better health habits. Number four, join a yoga, walking, or aerobics class. And now that we're in this pandemic, you can do a lot of these things online. You can find online health fitness programs. Number five, learn to meditate. And number six, these small steps can lead to many more healthy habits in your lifestyle. So go and visit www.wellnessmonth.com for a calendar of daily challenges for small ways you can choose to be well every day. Oh, those are all very good things to live by. Yeah, they look great. Learn to meditate. I'm trying to meditate a little bit, even if it's just, you know, taking 15 minutes to relax my mind. And it I makes. Just, I need to do that. I just haven't gotten into meditation. I just, you know, I, even when I come home, they're just. I'm just so wired to be doing something. And for me to sit down, I'm thinking, oh, I need to be up doing something. That we've got to get out of that mindset. I know. It's a mindset. Take some quiet time, even if you're just sitting quiet. I take some quiet time, so the dirty clothes are going to still be there. That's exactly it. Well, what's the latest about Jeff Bezos' ex-wife? <laughs> Well, so a friend sent this to me uh, uh, in the mail yesterday, and at first I didn't know who she was, Mackenzie Scott, and this person was going on and on about, oh, this is great, about what she did and so forth. And I opened the article and read it, and she had given, Mackenzie Scott had given a lot of money to different charities, including some of the historically black colleges. Looked her up, and that's Jeff Bezos, Amazon, ex-wife, who got a huge settlement when they divorced. You know, Amazon rules the world. Right. Um, so three HBCUs announced they received the largest donations in the school's history. Three historically black colleges and universities announced Tuesday 
that they have each received the largest single donation in their school's history. Howard, Xavier in, U in Louisiana, as opposed to Xavier in Cincinnati, Hampton, all beneficiaries of massive donations. Two of the schools, Howard and Hampton, announced that the donations came from Mackenzie Scott, who was the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, as I mentioned, mentioned that she had donated $1.7 billion of her fortune to charity. Although Xavier said their donor chose to remain anonymous, Scott announced that she had also donated to the university. I would like to thank Ms. Mackenzie Scott for her investment into Howard and our 153-year mission of serving a diverse community of dynamic scholars who come here for an education and leave here with the purpose to serve the community, said the President Wayne A.I. Frederick. We plan to immediately put this eight-figure gift to good use to support components of our five-year strategic plan to help students graduate on time, retain our talented faculty, enhance our campus infrastructure, and support academic innovation and entrepreneurship. Howard did not disclose how much they got, but Xavier said it was given $20 million. Wow. Mm. The institution is known for its long history of producing more African-American MDs, Xavier is, than any other institution in the United States, also federal judges, civil rights attorneys, renowned artists, musicians, business leaders, and elected officials serving on the local, national, and state level. Xavier said in a statement announcing how much they had gotten. Hampton, which received a donation from Scott, but they did not reveal their amount, said they are looking into several areas where the money could be spent, including scholarships, upgrades to science labs, and the campus as a whole. Money would also go to Hampton University's Proton Therapy Institute, where lives are saved daily from the devastating effects of cancer. So in a Medium post, Scott said she enlisted a team of nonprofit advisors with representation for marginalized communities to help her identify the most effective charities to fund. She said, I began work to complete my pledge with the belief that my life had yielded two assets that could be of particular value to others. The money these systems helped deliver to me and a conviction that people who have experienced with inequities are the ones best equipped to design solutions, she wrote. Scott, who's 50, is believed to be the third richest woman in the country with a net worth of, ding, 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 $36 billion, according to Forbes. And most of her wealth comes from her 4% stake in Amazon. So if she's only got 4%, imagine what Jeff Bezos has. There it is. So my comment on this, you know I always have to have a comment. <laughs> I am exceedingly happy that Miss Scott donated to these three HBCUs, but I will say to you, as I said on Facebook this morning, those three schools were already heavily endowed. Right. Hampton, I believe, is the most, is the heaviest endowed of the three schools. It may be neck and neck with Howard and Xavier. I just had hoped, wished that some of the other lesser known to other people, not lesser known to many of us, mm -hmm. had received some of that money like this. Yes. That almost closed. Tougaloo, mm -hmm. Tuskegee, Talladega, where my mother went to school, Federal State, Shaw, St. Aug, a lot of these. Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, the one that's that here. struggling. Remember Lincoln, Lincoln University? That's up in what? Lincoln. That's in Pennsylvania. And your daughter had the opportunity to go to Fifth, mm -hmm. and I'm sure she saw firsthand some of the things that they could have used that money for. Big time. So all I'm saying is I am not dogging what she did. I, I applaud it. It's wonderful. 
I don't know who she had advising her, but it would have been nice for some of that money to trickle down to some of the other schools. Having said that, hopefully some of the other people who have a lot of money will see what she did and have other advisors to tell them that, hey, there are other schools other than Hampton and Xavier and Howard that, and Morgan. Morgan is heavily endowed. Yes, Morgan State. Some of the other schools could use some money. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because as you know, historically black schools, except for Howard, Hampton and uh, Xavier and Morgan, many of them have been on the brink of closing. I mean, they were in, in, in Atlanta. There used to be five black schools. Big Morehouse, time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Clark, Atlanta University, and there was one other one. Mm-hmm. There, there were, there were, and so they Morris, had, Brown. Morris Brown. Morris Brown. Brown. Mm-hmm. Morris Brown. Morris Brown. So they've gone from that to Spelman, Morehouse, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Clark is open. Morris Brown, I don't think, is, and Atlanta University. So, you know, a lot of these schools that trained a lot of black folks, put out a lot of law doctors and lawyers and federal judges and every congressman and everybody else, mm-hmm. they needed some help, too. Exactly. That's my soapbox. The only reason I'm saying my parents taught at historically black colleges, mm-hmm. and I know the struggles that they have had and the work that they have tried to do with you know, getting good teachers who have taken cuts and pay and all that stuff. So, as they say, I'm just saying. I know. Yeah, my mother and my uncles and all that went to Tuskegee and Hampton and mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. Savannah. We forgot about um, Savannah State. Savannah State, absolutely. Johnson C. Smith, where my dad went to college. My mother went to Talladega. My dad went to Johnson C. Smith. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then by them teaching, I was around historically black colleges all my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I have seen the struggle mm-hmm. that they have, you know, incurred. And they have done a lot. I mean, a lot of kids couldn't go to the big schools, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and all these places. Mm-hmm. And the black colleges were there to teach them. And they didn't do, many of them didn't do so doggone badly. I know, because it's a lot of, like you said, a lot of judges, doctors, and and attorneys, and everything coming from our historically black colleges. So Look how many great people came out of Hampton. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. Morehouse, Mm -hmm. Feldman, and Fifth, Mm -hmm. you know, artists and painters and stuff like that that they're talking about, and judges and the congressmen. John Lewis is a product of an HBCU. So, Mm -hmm. you know... Yes. So, uh, so kudos. Yes. And, kudos. and all of us should really think about that. I, I think a lot of times we don't really think about historically black colleges when it's time to set up endowments and things. But at, no, at least this, at least this would be maybe a catalyst to get other folks, like right. you said, to start doing that. You know, we were talking about baseball starts again, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because you know they might have to go back in the box. They, hey, they might have to go back in the box. So Be- they they dashed out there, and I, it was always baffling to me how these four teams thought that they could be smarter than the virus, which we know. You know, now I think everybody agrees that it's an airborne virus, Mm -hmm. that you need social distancing and hand-washing, and all of these things were the antithesis of of sports teams getting together. And so now uh, the Marlins, I think the other day, most recently, they have 14 baseball players that tested positive for COVID. And this was just – and then so the Indians have somebody. So it's just – it's a snowball effect, and – 
I think, you know, the NFL has canceled their preseason. So mm-hmm. I just don't see how it's going to work. And I saw one of the players on television the other day who said, I'm scared. Of course. Of course, because you up there, that's what people don't understand. You up there, you, you're going to be breathing even more harder because you working up a sweat. You working up a sweat. You are, you are doing high intensity exercise, right? Exactly, Vicky. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to be huffing and puffing and air so like that virus all over the place. That's it. So it, it is scary. And I think we just need to to kind of chill back for a little bit. That's what I think. I agree. You know? I agree. Or wear your mask when you, and that's what I've been, you know, since I'm going to be teaching back again, and we're going to be doing, you know, that that physical. But you said you're going to be wearing your mask. All of us, we're going to be wearing our masks. Yes, even though we're going to be distancing, we have to learn, and that's going to be my chore, dance and do physical activity with their mask on but we'll take a lot of breaks we'll take a lot of breaks but yeah I don't see why people don't see that when you up there breathing and huffing all on each other I mean what do you expect what do you expect exactly you know stay tuned to see what they do I I I think they're going to have to shut it down I think so too players themselves are saying we're scared Mm mm-hmm that's it so we'll see so what's the latest? Do you have any latest, D, on what's up out there? Uh, no, other than, you know, in Ohio, Governor DeWine continues to present the data on COVID. Uh, the hot spots are still, you know, it looks like Texas may be leveling off a little bit. Uh, Florida is still a major hot spot, uh, as you, you know, Georgia um, and Ohio is still. And the, the, the bad news is, you know, I haven't had a vacation since December, mm-hmm. and you're looking around. I was looking around last night about places to go. Ohio has a lot of the other states, but since we live here, impose a lot of restrictions. Like if you come in from someplace hot spot, they're going to expect you to, to quarantine. And the other day, I was looking maybe maybe going to Boston. Mm-hmm. Well, Massachusetts has that if you come from a hot spot, you have to have proof of a 72-hour COVID test or mandatory 14 days of quarantine, and they're not playing, or it's a $500 fine. So, you know, here we find ourselves, Ohio, in a hot spot, which is why I say, please wear your mask. And you, you, we're imprisoned in our own country, in our own state. There it is. You just said it. You can't go. You, I mean, when has it ever been that you couldn't go from state to state? And now you can't fly to Boston without you have to fill out a travel form and if you don't have proof of a 72-hour COVID test you have to quarantine someplace where I'm sure they'll put you up and there goes your vacation uh-huh. or a $500 fine I know I don't so know there it is. so there it is we're, we're just stuck so we might as well try to do what we need to do so that we can hurry and get out of yeah. this but the way so we, we can get out of it the way we move in the way we move in will be still doing stuff in 2022 i know wouldn't that be terrible oh awful we'll keep in tune you'll keep us in tune with stuff huh i'll keep you updated i'll keep everybody updated okay hi everyone this is dr vicki haywood doe 
I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about health disparities, health equity, and the determinants of health. The determinants of health, such as where you work, your education, where you live, all of these factors may influence your access to health care and your health and well-being. And so joining us, joining us today is attorney Daniel Dawes, a healthcare attorney and director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. He's here to talk about his new book, The Political Determinants of Health. He advocates that we should look more closely at the political determinants of health because these may be the catalyst that influences health equity and health care equality. He insists we need to address those by addressing those determinants. They may give us more effective solutions to overcoming health inequality and health disparities. And so we can't wait to talk more with him. Let us listen to our interview with attorney Daniel E. Doss. Well, here with us today is attorney Daniel E. Doss, an author, a healthcare attorney, and the director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, which has newly partnered with the CDC Foundation to establish the Health Equity Task Force. Daniel Doss has been at the forefront of recent major federal health policy negotiations in the United States. He is the co-founder of the Health Equity Leadership and Exchange Network, Helen, and the author of 150 Years of Obamacare. Daniel Doss is here to talk about his book, The Political Determinants of Health, in which he focuses on the political determinants of health and opens our eyes to how they affect our nation's health. So how are you today, Attorney Daniel? Well, thank you, Dr. Doe. I appreciate it. Um, It's so great to be with you. All is well at my end, thankfully. And I hope the same for you. And Dr. D? 
I'm good. We're so happy to have you on finally. It's been a minute. Thank you, Dr. D. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. No, we're really happy to have you. And what a great time to have you on to discuss your new book. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited to dig into it today. Let's start out. Tell us your story. You know, how did you become interested in healthcare disparities? Also, you know, I've been following you on the social media, Facebook, right? Social media, Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it seems that you are doing a whole bunch of things, exciting things, with CDC Foundation. So tell us all about that. Tell us your story. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, let me just start by saying that um, I'm a proud co-laborer in the movement to advance health equity. I think, you know, in everything that I do, it is geared towards the creation and advancement of health equity, especially for communities of color. And so in terms of my story, I grew up in the Midwest, was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, to a multicultural family, multiracial, um, um, biracial with um, black and white family members. So it's always been interesting to see the disparities among both sides of, uh, of the family, right? I would notice that uh, my black side of the family were you know, sicker. They were dying at younger ages than the white side of my family. And, and as I started growing older, you know, you realize that there are all these other disparities, uh, primarily in the Midwest, that we haven't touched upon. So why is it that the Midwest seems to have some of the highest quality care scores in the country, but yet the disparities, the racial and ethnic disparities are some of the worst in the country? These are things that I thought was pretty interesting. And so for me, a lot of this started just growing up and um, witnessing my father struggling to attain health care. Again, it was owing to his pre-existing conditions. He has high blood pressure and diabetes, which seems to run in, in my family on the black side. I observed, you know, disparities uh, among not only my dad, but among uh, uncles, my grandparents as well, his mom and his father, who died from heart disease. My grandfather had a stroke, had issues with his heart. Same thing with my grandmother and diabetes and all of these numerous complications that I, I hadn't seen in the white side of my family. So I thought it was a pretty interesting um, phenomenon that was happening. And why was it happening, right? And I wanted to learn why that was resulting. So uh, afterwards, what happened was I decided uh, during high school to, to learn as much as I could. And I volunteered with a hospital down in uh, South Florida where we were living at the time. You know, I, I wanted to get a closer look at the massive problems faced by underserved communities. So I volunteered with a safety net hospital in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And, and on my first day, I remember being assigned to the emergency department and witnessing this episode, right, that convinced me that I wanted to spend the rest of my life increasing access or awareness of and meaningfully addressing health disparities. So in this, in this experience, there was a woman who had immigrated from Haiti. She spoke very limited um, English, so she was limited English proficient. Okay. She was a black woman. I'm watching her trying desperately to be understood by the um, healthcare staff, uh, the triage nurse and um, her team. She wasn't uh, successful. And, you know, at first I saw the triage nurse then call another nurse who was of the same skin color and tone and uh, I, I don't know what she was thinking, perhaps because they're both black and they both had accents that perhaps this uh, person would be able to communicate with the individual. But this, this woman spoke English, this nurse, and she did not speak uh, Haitian Creole. Okay. So there was this back and forth going and an argument pursuing, and I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder 
you know, how often this happens in our country, especially since every minute, every second is critical when we're delivering care. And so for me, that really was a revelation for how vulnerable many patients really are in this country and, and how complicated healthcare delivery can be in the United States, especially for our um, healthcare providers. So at that point, you know, I, I finished up with uh, working in that hospital, volunteering in that hospital system, and I decided to go further up north to Orlando with Florida Hospital. And I, I, I wanted an opportunity. They had a leadership development program. I wanted to learn about um, how healthcare administration is done, right? Okay. Why aren't we tackling this in our healthcare system? This was back in the in the 1990s. This was around the time now where there was greater attention. So David Satcher, Dr. Satcher, was Surgeon General, and uh, with the Clinton administration, had been working to create a national racial disparities awareness campaign. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And at the same time, there was uh, an, an effort. Uh, in Congress to pass uh, a, a piece of legislation to address minority health. So all of that um, to say things were brewing, but I didn't realize it at the time, and I didn't realize that people were paying attention. So I wanted to get involved to raise that awareness and to figure out what were the true drivers of these inequities. So from one piece to the next, and, 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 and during that time, it was so interesting, uh, every time I was doing this internship with this hospital in Orlando, and I tried to create uh, cultural competency toolkits, uh, resources for the clinical staff and the administrators. The lawyers would always push back on me, okay, saying mm. uh, that uh, no, you can't, you can't touch this issue, right? Mm. Um, mm. Th- they would push back and tell me that I couldn't do it for one legal reason or another. And of course, because I had no formal legal training at that time, I had no way of pushing back and checking whether they were being truthful. So that was, that was pretty upsetting. But one of the things that happened during that internship was it caused me to keep thinking, well, this is really peculiar, that the law would allow us, right? I can't, I can't develop programs to highlight disparities in care, but yet the law would continue to maintain the status quo with folks being discriminated in healthcare. How is that justifiable? That's unconscionable to me. So I worked with them, and um, it it really was a catalyst for me deciding instead of getting a master's in public health, perhaps I should go to law school so I can learn that language, I can read the laws, I can understand, you know, what uh, policies, what laws have been implemented, have been passed and implemented to address this issue. Have, Have there actually been any to date, right? I didn't know any of those things. So it propelled me in that direction and during law school, I found it fascinating that, um, you know, in, in my, during my tenure, I kept getting angrier and angrier because you read these laws and you think, well, my God, who in the world wrote these laws, right? Didn't they take an equity lens? Didn't they know, right, <laughs> that when they were crafting this law, mm. that it would have this type of impact on racial and ethnic communities? Or did they not even care, right? So... When you delve even deeper into this, you realize, oh, my goodness, uh, there was a dearth of laws to um, elevate uh, minority health and, and eliminate health disparities. And that was extremely troubling. So from there, I started you know, looking for other opportunities uh, in this space that would allow me to address health inequities. And a friend of mine said, Daniel, there is a fellowship opportunity with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the Lewis Stokes 
a health policy fellowship program. Mm-hmm. And you would, oh my gosh, you've been talking about disparities for as long as I've known you, right? Since we were kids. So why don't you, why don't you take a look at this and uh, apply if you're interested? And I said, you know what? Sure. I looked at it and I said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I would love to be doing. I had no interest um, in, in ever getting into the political arena, mm-hmm. which is ironic, right? Given my right. into law. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it did. Yeah. So it, it, it pushed me, it pushed me to uh, look at uh, look at that opportunity, and and I applied and um, interviewed, and obviously, uh, you know, the rest is history. I was selected and got the opportunity to work with the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust under the leadership of Congresswoman Donna Christensen. I got to work with another hero of mine, Congressman Louis Stokes, you know, who is the son of Ohio and um, one of the From thirteen original members. From Cleveland, that's right. Yes. And, uh, and, and he inspired me because, you know, he too was an attorney by training, but cared very deeply about these issues of um, health inequities and wanted to do something. So he founded the Congressional Black Caucus uh, Health Brain Trust, which he then gave to Congresswoman Donna Christensen. Since she was the first uh, female physician member of Congress, he thought she was more appropriate to, to um, lead that uh, caucus. So, so I got to work with both of them. I learned from them and they just inspired me to continue learning as much as I could during that tenure. And from there, you know, got to work with Senator Ted Kennedy on the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee and work on policies. Yes, it was amazing. So all of these employee benefits laws, all of these health policies or health laws that I had read about during law school that frustrated me, they were up for reauthorization. And I thought, ooh, now is the time. (laughs) <laughs> to to take an equity lens to this work, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because when I was there, if I had not been in that seat, I cringed to think where we would be, even with these amendments and these reauthorizations of these um, statutes, where we would be in terms of health equity and, and policy. So thankfully, you know, this is why I'm a big champion for ensuring that we have diversity. There are racial and ethnic minorities at the table, especially the policy table, helping to, you know, use their respective lens to inform the policy that's being developed. So, so critical. You were involved with the Affordable Care Act, which I didn't used to like to call it Obamacare, but he called it Obamacare, and your book says 150 years of Obamacare. So before (laughs) we get into your new book, that's maybe sort of how we kind of connected, because you talked about my cousin in that book, the, the Wilmington Hospital story. But just briefly, so did, did that, from all, all of what you did with Donna Christensen and, and um, Ted Kennedy, did that lead to the development of you writing 150 Years of Obamacare? Oh, Dr. D, it absolutely did. I'm so glad you, you brought that up because you reminded me why, why I wrote that book to begin with. And it was because of my experiences on the Hill, having talked with um, the congresswoman, talked to the congressman, with Congressman Stokes and Congresswoman Christensen, and, and being, you know, on Ted Kennedy's staff that I realized when I was there and I kept asking folks to tell me, you know, what had been tried and tested before to move this health equity agenda forward in policy. And folks would say, well, you know, oh, I know we did some stuff here. We, it, it seemed to me that we were more reactionary, right, when it came to policy. And, and that, you know, when we lost a member who had been instrumental in advancing the cause of health equity, that knowledge went with them. You know, for me, it was frustrating because you're trying to build upon, you're trying to understand which levers 
have been pulled and pushed that um, worked or which ones didn't so we could avoid repeating those mistakes. And there was nothing that had formally been written that would um, enable us to, to, to move forward with an effective strategy. That is why I wrote 150 Years of Obamacare, because I think a lot of that strategy, a lot of the advocacy had been lost throughout the years. And even in speaking with, with civil rights leaders, right? You know, many of them we know as huge champions in, in, in health equity. But a lot of them, you know, when we went back into the history, had said, I didn't even know that there was a health law 150 years ago, a health reform agenda, one that addressed the social determinants of health right after the Civil War. And I said, that's exactly right. And I said, let's look at this. And I delved into the history of how that was created, how that law was um, developed, the Freedmen's Bureau Act, the negotiations over that, how contentious it was during that time, how, you know, the Lincoln supporters, President Abraham Abraham Lincoln's uh, supporters were actually instrumental in pushing for, you know, not only getting clothing and food, but housing and, and education and employment and security for these newly freed people, right? Black folks. And, and how yeah. that bill was only allowed to see the light of day when they included, you know, provisions to help poor whites as well, right? So that was interesting to know that history. And during the, the back and forth, there was one provision that was so contentious that opponents of health equity would not allow it uh, over the finish line, and that was access to medical care. Huh. You know, we know, yeah, it was a fascinating history. So we know then that this issue of healthcare access was contentious from the very beginning of this country's founding, all the way 70 years past that date in the 1860s, all the way up until our modern era when we were working on the ACA, as you know. That has been quite a story. And when you hear President Obama and you hear VP Biden on the day of the signing ceremony for the Affordable Care Act saying, but well, basically when the vice president was whispering in President Obama's ear and saying, you realize this is a big expletive deal, this book actually <laughs> fleshes out <laughs> fleshes out why it's an even bigger deal than I think most people realize. Because we haven't been trying this advancement of healthcare access and policy for 100 years. We've, in fact, been trying this for about 150, over 150 years. And that matters. That extra 50 years matters because we have been trying to stretch that umbrella of inclusivity, okay, in healthcare just a little bit wider so that the benefits of that larger movement would actually help those who have been more, most vulnerable in our society, more invisible in our society. That's a long time. That is a long time. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Has anything changed, though? We always keep talking about um, health disparities, so I don't know. Yeah, for four, over 401 well, years, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, when I started your book, and I guess, you know, we could spend an two or three hours on your book, but I thought in one of the questions that I sent you, I think when you open your book and start reading, that allegory that you talked about mm-hmm. sets the scene for the book. So mm-hmm. could you just briefly, I know it's hard to do briefly, but I'm trying to figure out a question <laughs> that would draw in a lot of this, before we get to some of the other questions, of drawing a lot of what your book is about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the idea, this is the allegory of the orchard. And I was trying to think of a way that would help to explain, you know, structural racism, systemic racism in this country, how they were created and perpetuated and exacerbated in our society. 
And as I was thinking back, you know, on, on my past experiences, I had just come out of a hurricane. I think it was Hurricane Irma at the time. And I was thinking about some trees that I had seen, you know, fallen, things that had happened. I thought, well, you know, my God, there's a lesson to be learned from this experience. And, and one that I think can drive home the message about this issue of structural and systemic racism in America. So the idea is there is a farmer who is seeking out new land in order to create an orchard. He wants to grow his wealth. He brings with him six seeds. And as he's looking and he's searching, he finally comes upon a plot of land that he thinks is ideal for his purposes. But he sees this magnificent tree in the middle of the orchard that's taking up you know, vital real estate in his mind, right? taking up too much space. And he doesn't recognize you know, the value of this tree uh, to the orchard. So he immediately commences to digging out the tree and then transplanting it to another section of the plot of land. And then he begins to take two of the seeds out of his pocket. He is very careful and diligent in, you know, making sure that he measures the depth of the hole where he's planting these seeds. He provides fertilizer for these seeds, gives them water, takes real good care to make sure that um, they're given the resources that they need in order to thrive. Then he goes to the second area of the plot of land, and this area, you know, is more rocky. It has more rocky soil. So the first part, you know, had really deep, rich black soil. But in this, in this area, it was a little rockier, right, a little more sandy. But he, he, he goes and he starts planting. He, he's not as careful with these two seeds now that he's going to plant in that um, area. But he does, you know, cover them up. Uh, he gives them a little bit of water. doesn't even bother to give them any fertilizer. And then he goes, you know, with the last two seeds in his pocket. Night is falling now because he's taken so long trying to find this uh, plot of land. And he's taken so much effort trying to remove this magnificent tree. So now all of a sudden it's nighttime. You know, he just uh, basically throws them, scatters them on this area that is more rocky, right? Structurally disadvantageous for, the, for seeds. And then he leaves. So after some time, he comes back to check and see, you know, what, uh, what happened, to see if all of his seeds were growing and thriving. When he comes back, he comes back with his, his uh, laborers, right, his folks who are helping him to create this orchard. And, and they look, and they were astonished by what they found. So of the six seeds, only four were able to um, grow. The two that were in the deeply rich soil, there were two that actually grew out of their sandy soil. One, one did manage to uh, break ground and come up, but it, it withered quickly after it did uh, manage to get out of the ground. And then in the third part, we only saw one actually make it. But over time, there were a series of events that caused them to um, you know, really encounter some obstacles to thriving in the orchard. Uh, at one point, there is this storm that comes out of nowhere that hits the uh, sapling that was in the um, rocky soil, right, that it managed to beat the odds, even though it had never gotten to be firmly rooted in that area. It managed to grow, but the storm, you know, hits it, struck it basically into two pieces. And then after that, there are three trees that are essentially left in this orchard from six seeds, uh, two in the very fertile soil and then one in that more sandy soil. And despite its circumstances, the one in the sandy soil managed with tremendous resilience to keep growing, but it struggled. And the farmer now, over time, started getting irritated uh, with this tree 
in the sandy soils, believing that it wasn't producing enough, it wasn't doing enough, it wasn't going to increase as well, right? But the two in the very deeply rich soil, uh, he was pleased with. You know, they were uh, bearing great fruit, delicious fruit, they were producing, and uh, he kept blaming this uh, third tree, right? Thinking, ah, my gosh, why? I've given everything that I can. He even at one point gave it fertilizer. He even had applied some um, pesticides to kill the bugs that were gnawing at its tree and limbs. But it, it didn't do the, do the trick, right? And in the end, what happens in the story is that this poor tree eventually ends up dying prematurely, right? And he just doesn't understand it, and neither do these laborers, the uh, farm laborers who are with him. And it's a it's a really an allegory for so many uh, things, as you can imagine. I mean, the great tree represented uh, many Native American communities who had been, you know, uprooted and, and, and pushed to reserve lands in this country that um, really are not beneficial for, for any type of life, human life or otherwise, right? And um, have suffered tremendously as a result. And we know that, you know, there is, you know, when you transplant a actual plant or a tree, uh, what happens is that there is shock. It can lead to the uh, quick death of many of these um, these plants and trees. And so we see the same result even within um, within uh, communities of color, right, who have been moved, especially indigenous populations. And interestingly enough, if you go back in time, there is a chief of the Choctaws who back in 1822, when they'd been forced uh, into Oklahoma onto reservations, had talked about you know this this idea which I found out after I had um, created this allegory where he also discussed how their plight and, and their experiences was like that of a of a of a tree that had been uprooted and transplanted somewhere and is now withering away. So I thought that was a pretty interesting um, piece to to document. And then after that, now you know when we talk about these issues of of um, you know, soil and depths of soil and so forth. These represent these structural determinants, right? When you think about, you know, where we are placed as human beings, our placement was intentionally designed. We know about these laws, the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act. We know about the intentional redlining here in the United States that have placed us in certain areas. And, and for many racial and ethnic minorities in less favorable areas of our country, right? And, and then we wonder why many of our, our, of our community members are struggling with ill health and premature death. It's because of this intentionality. So that is aimed at, um, when we talk about the placement in these areas, that is supposed to help folks understand those structural drivers of inequities. And then the storms, you know, the storms that come into our lives, the storm that hit this tree that was struggling but yet resilient, uh, these include, you know, these sudden... Um, Issues that happen in our life, when you talk about uh, police-perpetrated violence, you talk about natural disaster, you talk about pandemics or epidemics, like what we're going through with COVID, that mm -hmm. just strike, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you have no warning or fair warning in many cases, right? But again, take a toll on our health and our well-being. So that's what that allegory is intended to do. It's intended to paint for us this picture of how inequities, health inequities were concretized, Right into our society. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> With respect to the first political determinant of health, you know, how important is voting, you know, does it matter who you vote for? Your thoughts. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I, 
let me actually put it put this in perspective for many folks who have been following these social determinants of health movement right and understand that uh, i think it's, it's fair to say that most of us recognize that um, there are multiple interacting determinants of health but the social determinant it is argued actually has a or it has a greater impact on our health it, it, it dictates how long we're going to live on this earth and the quality of life that we will have on this earth. So with that, what are these social determinants? There are this, you know, structural conditions in which we are born and we live, where we work and are educated and, 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 um, and likewise. And so if, if it is true that that social determinant has about a 40% impact on our overall health, well, certainly, you know, when you go further upstream and you're looking closely at these social determinants, you know, there's something driving these social determinants, right? What is it? What is instigating the results that we see? Why, do, why is it that when we go into a black community in Overtown, Miami, or in Atlanta, Georgia, or in Baltimore, or New York, or Boston, or you go out to Detroit, you know, in Cleveland and other areas, why is it that we often see a major highway that has cut right through the middle of these black communities? Why do we see parking lots? where we once saw housing in black communities, right? Again, budding right next to these communities, creating increased air pollution. Why is it that if you go to uh, Harlem, if you go to Manhattan, in Harlem, in the black community, again, there are six of the seven bus depots that were located in that black community that has created the increased air pollution that these communities have to breathe in every single day of their lives. And then we wonder why you know, we see higher rates of asthma in the black community and in Latinx communities. Why? It's not because they just mysteriously appeared or because black communities decided to move to these uh, infrastructures, but they were designed intentionally uh, implemented there by policy. And so my argument with political determinants of health is to get us to recognize that underlying every social determinant, every determinant of our health, is a political determinant, right, that has been exacerbating these um, results for decades in this country. So what is happening now? It's having these political determinants have been having a, a chokehold on these communities, and they are tightening this chokehold on the communities, right, over time. So when you talk about voting, and I'm so glad you raised that, especially since we're in election year, I hope folks recognize that perhaps arguably one of the greatest political determinants is voting. I, I think for many people, they, they fail to see that connection between right. voting and, 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 and their lifespan and their health. Right. So when you think about our forebears, you think about you know, our parents, grandparents, and, and those before them with shorter lifespans, again, you can, you can directly tie that life expectancy and those poor health outcomes to a political determinant. And if we don't recognize that voting is really that first and, and major aspect of the political determinant, we will have lost a critical opportunity to drive policies that will elevate health equity. So when you, when you think about voting, voting is so crucial because you can even bypass policymakers who have been part of the problem, who've been obstinate, who have refused to develop and implement uh, health equity focus policies, right, through ballot augmentation, for instance. 
we can use voting to elect the very policy uh, makers, the decision makers who will be able to push forth those policies. So it is so critical because, again, it will dictate what type of life we have on this earth. So apparently you're not surprised at all with the, when you were talking about the sapling and a big storm that this COVID epidemic, you probably were not surprised at all to realize the disparities of those that were affected, right? Absolutely not. I, I was, you know, I was actually surprised by how many people were surprised and how many folks mm-hmm. in the media were surprised, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't mm-hmm. tell you, you know, when it was, it was so interesting, even with these issues of inequities, when we knew that, um, or we suspected, I should say, based on past research showing that every single time there has been a pandemic or epidemic in the United States, the ones who have been on the downside of advantage and opportunity, the ones who have been disproportionately impacted, negatively impacted, are the same groups, black and brown folks in this country, immigrants, and um, people with disabilities, right? Katrina. And this is I'm just thinking about Katrina. Katrina. That's right. Absolutely. And if we could even go all the way back to when, again, this, this country was founded as a constitutional form of government with the first epidemic, yellow fever that struck Philadelphia, right? It's the same right. result from that time all the way until today. And, and again, you know, there has never been, as a result of that, during a pandemic or epidemic, an equitable response, right? And that's been so unfortunate that in this great country of ours, we have never been able to align the resources with the greatest need. So this time around, as we talk about, you know, moving forward to accelerate health equity, it has been interesting to see why that has resulted. And we know a part of that is because during those times, people weren't able to get the data in real time. That's an argument that they've always made that, you know, we don't have the data, so we don't, we're not quite sure if that's still the truth. Is that, really, is that really happening right now with these black communities or these Latinx or Native American communities? Is that really happening? Because, you know, we don't have the data. And, of course, the idea is if there's no data, there is no problem in the eyes of these policymakers, right? And as a result of that, they've been able to get away with not having to align the resources with the greatest need. This time around, we want to ensure that people's eyes are open, that they understand the history of this country in terms of pandemics and epidemics and all these other things that have happened uh, that created the result that we see today. So it, it didn't just, these disparities didn't just appear. In fact, we know that they have been striking for generations. Like, I mean, you could go back to 401 years, right? From the time that folks were being brought on ships, right? Enslaved people were brought on ships to this country, there were experiments going on on people on these ships, right? On Africans on these ships. And then even after that, we know there were gynecological research and others on black women and Native American women and and women with mental illnesses and so forth over time. And then again, when you look at the policies, because I take a political lens to this work, Mm -hmm. when you look back, and we talked about social determinants of health mm-hmm. playing a key role, right, in our overall health. Well, then let's go back 401 years to the time that Massachusetts decided they had to create a law to legalize slavery, right, to justify enslaving black folks in this country. And then what did we see after that? There were a host of laws in the colonies, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, you name it, were basically intended, essentially intended, to prohibit blacks and Native Americans from 
growing their own food, right, from learning to read, from learning to read English in particular, from uh, they had to carry a lantern at night, they could not loiter, they had to have passes in order to move around. So all of these pieces that we now call, we've categorized as social determinants of health, there were laws that were prohibiting these groups from exercising their ability, from getting a fair opportunity to address their social determinants of health. So we see that, again, being recycled with these policies from one century to the next, right, all the way up until today. And so is it any surprise, then, with um, these laws and policies being recycled, even when we went from facially uh, intentionally discriminatory policies to facially, quote-unquote, neutral policies, right, where they didn't seem like they were singling out black and brown folks, these laws have always had a, a disproportionate or disparate impact on black and brown folks and, and have kept them down. And so the result that we saw, it wasn't an organic outcome that we saw or we see today, but one that, again, was being propelled by public policies. Wow. <laughs> I know. Wow. That's this a is amazing. This has been fantastic. I know. Here's the question in conclusion. Yes. How, how can we play the game, as you say, to achieve equal opportunity and to have better health care as a regular person? Well, I think, I think, you know, a lot of us really need to, to get comfortable with and, and, and knowledgeable about engaging in the tough conversations around race, place, and class. And we have got to do a great job uh, of advocating for a full commitment to tackling health inequities upstream in all areas. So we know that during this time of protest, right, where racial tensions are high and we're, we're fighting to dismantle structural and systemic racism in this country, I think we have to also, it's an and and not an or, connect that, bridge the activism to all of the health inequities, right, and then bridge that into some substantive public policies that can um, help us to really elevate this issue. I think, too, we also need to think about working upstream to address not only the social, but the political determinants of health inequity. And we have to understand when they are at play. So it's not enough for us to just focus on these social determinants of health inequities, but we also need to understand that there is an interconnection underlying every single one is a political determinant. So I would, I would really urge folks to make sure they understand these political determinants of health, understand when they're at play. And then another thing that uh, I think we need to do, and, and this is true for all of us, you know, I don't care how many generations uh, we've been in a community. I think, you know, what I have witnessed in, in, in really working in this arena is that um, we barely remember things that happened a couple of years ago, much less a generation or generations ago. And so we have to do a better job researching the history of our communities to keep our community members engaged so they understand. And I say this not only for those who have been in these communities, but also because we are a, uh, a transient society. We move from one community to the next, right? I can't tell you how many times I've moved around in my life from, you know, from Nebraska, then to Florida, and then to D.C., and then to um, Atlanta, and so forth. So, so each time you go there, I'm ignorant about the community that I'm moving in, right? And I think we all need to do a better job because it's so easy to make judgments about the very people who are living there. 
And we've got to do a better job addressing the past policies at all levels. So I'm talking about local, state, and federal that created and perpetuated and exacerbated these inequities. And I think it's important to also remember this lesson in policy that exclusion has always been easier to realize in policy than inclusion, right? So if we keep that in the back of our heads, I think more people would be less inclined to make judgments or negative judgments about certain communities. And then I think one of the things that I've noticed, you know, over time, too, is that our networks and the level of our engagement has dwindled. We need to strengthen our advocacy networks. We need to strengthen our engagement in the political process. So it's not only about voting, right? That is a key political determinant of health. Not only voting, but continuous engagement in the political process, right, to ensure that the very policies that we need to protect our communities and help them thrive will we'll see it right through the finish line, and not even once they finish, not only when they get to the finish line, but also to make sure that when the regulations and other ensuing policies come, that they really are, are aligned with that, uh, particular, that particular policy. So, uh, again, I would say that, that's one. And then, and, and then my last piece is just to hone in on the point that uh, we've got to understand that health equity begins and it ends with the political determinants of health. That's fantastic. This has been great. Thank you. I would encourage everybody out there to get this book. <laughs> it is so timely uh, with what's going on now. We're right in the thick of it. And it's kind of like your book was a foreshadowing of what we're in now, right? Right. And, I, and let me tell you, I didn't even, <laughs> I had no clue we were going to go into this major global pandemic, right? Or that we would see the type of movement to dismantle structural racism. But I have to say it's been a very interesting thing. I don't know if we weren't going through these twin pandemics right now, whether people would even have um, thought seriously about, you know, political determinants of health. So in a sense, I think it really has helped to magnify this for many folks who are myopic and couldn't see the um, health inequities plaguing us for decades, for centuries in this country. And I think that, you know, for many now their eyes are open, their minds are open. And I'm hoping that this book will help to give them the tools that they need to effect the, you know, the, the changes that we need, right, to give them the tools that they need in order to move this agenda forward. Well, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks to Absolutely both of you fantastic. for your leadership. Now, this ends our show, Dee. So do you have some tips that we should think about? Oh, my goodness. It was fantastic having Attorney Daniel Dawes with us today. There was so much ground that he covered with his new book, Political Determinants of Health. I would just like to end it with, you know, there were a lot of things that he said, but one of the major political determinants of, of health is voting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're coming up in 100 days on voting. And as he said, you know, who you put into place, who you put into power, a lot of it determines the laws and policies and so forth that are going to be implemented will affect your life. You know, who is going to be Supreme Court justice, who is going to have all these things with respect to disparities, um, health care disparities impacted. So, Voting is a major political determinant of health, and I like that. Yes, it is. I enjoyed Attorney Daniel. I enjoyed him. Now it opens our eyes as to how important all of these factors are when we talk about health and wellness, you know. And so I think that everyone should go to Amazon.com and get his book. Yes, get his book. absolutely. It's called The Political 
determinants of health. And as always, for more information, go to our website, www.vickidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.